Welcome back to Sheep Stuff You Should Know. This is Dr. Rosie Bush uh, here at UC Davis, and I'm joined with Dan Macon over in Auburn, California. How are you doing, Dan? Good morning. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And we were complaining about cold, but I have a feeling that uh, our guest this morning will just laugh and laugh and laugh yeah. at us. <laughs> it is very windy here. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's probably windy there, too, but... So we're very lucky this morning to have a special guest, Danelle Bickett-Weddle from, well, you're in Iowa. You used to work at Iowa State University. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? I'd love to. Thank you for the opportunity to connect with you and your listeners today. Um, I'm originally from South Dakota, so I say I moved south to Iowa <laughs> where it's warmer, and it is. Winters here are a lot warmer than where I grew up, but uh, we... Uh, been at Iowa State for about 19 years, and prior to that, I was in uh, production animal medicine practice in South Dakota, and uh, just a love of all things that produce food and fiber. So I'm really glad to join you guys today and share a little bit about the sheep project we've been working on for several years. Yeah. And what is so? I'll I'll start with the weather report. We also do the sheep herder weather update on a regular <laughs> basis. Uh, let's see, it was 27 and windy and very dry in Auburn this morning. That is not cold at all compared to where you are. You told me how cold it was where you are. Yes, it is a balmy seven degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> um, and that is the without wind chill factor. So we're anywhere between 11 and 20 below um, with, with those winds factored in. So it's definitely a, a bundle up, maybe a couple pair of gloves, those little warmer things that you snap and throw in your boots. Those are always good when we're out checking waterers, making sure everybody's got the ability to drink liquid instead of solids today. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's something we don't have to think about in this part of California very often, although we did have to break ice this morning. So I guess it is winter, right? It, it is, is in six more weeks of it. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what Punxsutawney Phil recently predicted. So that's right. That's right. We could do with a little more winter in California. We've had it's been totally dry since January eighth, and this is usually our wettest month of the year. So we'll uh, we'll see how the rest of the spring plays out. Yeah. So. We wanted to talk today about the secure sheep and wool supply, and I've been practicing all week not saying secure sheep yeah. and wool supply, um, but wanted to, to talk a little bit about that project that you've been involved in now for some time and um, maybe start with just an overview about, about what it is and, and why it is. What is the secure sheep and wool supply plan? Well, Thanks to funding from American Sheep Industry Association and then a subsequent, you know, follow up funding from USDA, we were able to work with folks like yourself, Dan, put together a working group to really look at what would happen if something like foot and mouth disease were to ever be diagnosed here in the United States. And if that happens, our export markets definitely shut down because we enjoy FMD free status without vaccination, which is awesome. It's the best you can get when it comes to trading with, with our international partners. So if something like that were to ever happen, we know exports are going to stop, but we might have to stop domestic movement too. What does that do to a sheep business, right? When, right. when you're getting ready to move to, to grazing land or bring them back because it's almost lambing season and you're told to stop for a while. 
So really trying to come up with contingency plans that our sheep producers could get their arms around practical things to make sure that they're putting things in place for that what if scenario. And that, that to me is, you know, it's, it seems like something that would never happen here. You know, it's, it's a long ways off and, and we've been FMD free for so long, but then I start thinking about some of the issues we've had here locally in the last couple of years with wildfires and, and other types of, of emergencies like that. And I think the, what we've all learned is that planning ahead is so critical. Um, what's different about sheep versus the other species when it comes to, to planning ahead? I think that's one of the, the things that I'm trying to wrap my head around. Well, and if that's okay, I just want to make a, I think, so we've been FMD free since, what was it? 1929. 1929. I knew it was the 20s. That's a while. I, but the world has changed so much, right? Like, look at how right. quickly COVID spread around the world. And, and that's, I mean, obviously human movement had a huge impact in that. But even with, we look at African swine fever and how, you know, much concern we have with that coming across for pigs. Um, I just, I think that the world is so different now. Like, yes, we haven't had it in so long, but the, if anything, I feel like that opportunity is even more present than maybe it was in the 50s or the 60s. And, but yeah, I don't know, back to what, I don't know. Well, maybe, maybe back up even further. What, what is foot and mouth disease? I mean, no, none of us have any direct experience with it here, right? Yeah, so, you know, the last outbreaks were in California, actually 1924 <laughs> and 1929 both happened there. And we've had it in North America. Uh, Mexico and Canada have both had it. Um, you know, Canada had it in the 50s. And so a lot of people have never seen it. And it's it's blisters and it can look like other things. So foot and mouth. So animals can get sores in their mouth or sores, you know, around their hooves, uh, in between the toes, those kinds of things. Um, the biggest thing to keep in mind is it's an animal disease. It's not a human risk, right? So even though there's a disease in people, and it's really little kids, hand, foot, and mouth disease. It's a completely different virus. So the two, you know, are not interchangeable by any means. So when we think about foot and mouth disease, it happens in cloven-hooved animals, so two-toed. So cattle, pigs, sheep, goats, deer, bison, you know, you name it, right? Mountain goats, a wildlife, right, that have two toes are, are also susceptible to it. So again, we haven't had it, but it's in two thirds of the countries of the wow. world. And there are some countries that have never been rid of it. And there are some countries that have had it, gotten rid of it for a really long time. And then boom, it popped up. UK in 2001, I think is probably the right. most vivid memory, mm -hmm. you know, people of our generation have seeing those pictures of, you know, the animals that were affected. Right, right. So it, it, that's, that's the other aha for me is that it's, it's such a broad spectrum, all cloven hood animals can get it. And I think that's, um, we'll get into this in a little bit, but that's, that's part of the challenge in our part of the world is that we've got lots of wildlife that could be reservoirs for it as well. Rosia, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. To keep it out. Right, <laughs> right? exactly. That's, that's exactly. Exactly. So did you work on the other plans as well? 
We did. And this um, secure sheep and wool supply plan is, is joining kind of a suite of, of planning materials for livestock producers. And, you know, there's a lot of producers that raise more than one species. So when you hear about foot and mouth disease affecting cattle and, you know, pigs and all of that kind of stuff, we actually have secure food supply plans, contingency planning, business continuity plans for, for secure milk, secure beef, secure sheep and wool, obviously, and secure pork. Um, and all of those were USDA funded. Um, also, the National Pork Board put money into developing the Nash, uh, secure pork supply plan, and they continue to kind of monitor that and update resources related to it. And then USDA funded um, the secure goat supply plan. So that is okay. um, the newest one. Um, and a group of folks are working on that as well to try and create resources again for producers that may be impacted by a movement control or movement restrictions if it were to ever happen. Okay. Yeah. What excites me so much about the secure sheep and wool is that it's, you know, when we think about enhanced biosecurity, we're thinking about swine operations where they're kind of routinely showering in, showering out, or poultry operations where they have these big foot baths. And, you know, there's a very clear delineation between in and out. And so, you know, like people think about these moon suits and all this stuff. And so how, you know, like, I think what's exciting about this plan is that, you know, you were able to achieve those practices that allow for enhanced biosecurity without that kind of physical barrier. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, like kind of like imaginary barrier or what that even looks like? Or Yeah, you bet. So one of the biggest things that producers can do is how can I make sure my animals don't get exposed if FMD were to get here, right? And so there's a lot of things happening at our borders, right? We have this Beagle Brigade and, and they're intercepting products that are coming in from countries that may bring FMD in. But really that last stop gap is that farm gate. Well, what if there is no farm gate, right? Because sheep are out and they're doing great jobs, keeping you know fire control and weeds down and all of that kind of stuff. They're in a lot of places. So how do we prevent their exposure? So one of the things we talk about in the secure food supply plans, all of them, is ways to enhance your biosecurity to protect your flock from exposure. My favorite analogy is think of your area where your animals are raised as your kingdom. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be king or queen of the castle? Right? <laughs> you know, and so, and, and we know some kingdoms are very big, but what did they do in the old days? They built castles up on a hill, right? And they put a wall around them and, you know, they were just ways to protect. So we use that same exact analogy when you think about, okay, what are ways that we could limit access to our sheep flock either through a drawbridge, right? Or fencing, or maybe some natural boundaries. And those are some of the tips we talk about with the secure sheep and wool supply plan is, it, it doesn't have to be raise them inside, lock them down, all of that. We get, we'll never get to zero exposure for our outdoor raised animals, but we can do some things to limit that exposure as much as possible. So yeah, the, the moat, building around an operation, the drawbridge ways to just try and control access a little bit more if we get into this, this highly contagious disease situation. Walk me through how, what would happen, say, say I wake up tomorrow and there's a case of FMD reported um, 
in Lincoln, which is 10 miles from five miles from where I have sheep right now. What, what would happen after that discovery? Well, first off, the announcement will come from a very high level. So our, our secretary of agriculture would be the one to, to make that call okay. because of the trade piece of it. So, you know, if someone saw something of concern on their farm, we want them to call, right? right. We have trained veterinarians that work for CDFA in all of the states that can come out confidentially and for free, look into that. Okay. And if they decide, wow, we need to collect some samples and send those off, doesn't cost a producer a dime okay. and nobody is talking about it. So the moon suits, right? <laughs> they show up in moon suits, but they're pretty careful because they don't want to alert people unnecessarily. And we do foreign animal disease investigations all the time in our states. So if, if they do find it's positive, then you know, within your state. So obviously, Dr. Jones, your state veterinarian and the USDA folks, lots of conversations in between. The governor is going to be noticed, notified, mm -hmm. and the Secretary of Agriculture will be the one to make the national announcement. So what happens locally if you're five miles away from it? So you'll be notified. How do they get a hold of you? Right? We want to make sure that there's some great contact information with the state, and they only pick up the phone and call when there's a problem. So they would notify producers that have what we call susceptible species to that disease within a 10 kilometer or six mile radius okay. of that farm. So okay. Daniel, phone's going to ring, right? Because <laughs> if you registered with the state to say, hey, I own livestock, they're going to give you a call and say, hey, something's happening in your area. They can't tell you who because there's confidentiality behind right. that. But they're going to say, you know, we really need you to do your part to protect your flock. And they'll walk you through like stepping up your biosecurity, probably point you to some some resources like the secure sheep and wool supply plan and also really heighten your awareness when you're going out every day, looking at those animals to see if something's changing and give them a call. Right. OK. OK. And then would there be a stop movement? I mean, it, my, my nightmare is it happens the day before we're hauling everybody home to shear or shipping lambs or something like that. So what happens with the movement of animals in that situation? And that stop movement is really what's being discussed because animal to animal spread is the fastest way to get this thing to move. Right. And so, and sometimes animals can shed the virus two to four days before they even look sick. Sounds like I another know. virus I know yeah. about. I know. Right? <laughs> Asymptomatic carriers, maybe terms that your audience has heard about. So, um, yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of give the analogy of, of what happened on 9-11. So we talk about a potential national movement standstill. Because when this virus is discovered, because we know how quickly we move critters in this country from place to place, state to state, there might be broader spread than, than we know right away. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we experienced it in 9-11 when they said, dear pilots, please safely get to your destination, shut off the plane and get out, and we're going to reassess. And we shut down airlines for four days. Right. And if you would have told somebody on 9-10 that was going to happen, they'd have probably laughed at you. Right. And, and then it took a while to, to restart everything. So kind of the same analogy with this is they are going to request a national movement standstill. The authority lies with the states to be able to do that. 
they'll give you some grace period, right? Because if you're on the road, right, you're moving animals to or from, maybe they're headed to a slaughter plant, some of those movements should continue, right? But after this little grace period, which they've talked about about a 12-hour period, mm -hmm. then we want to stop. And again, we want to shut off those trucks and let everybody sit. So thinking about contingency planning for where critters are. Do you have a permit that's coming due and you need to talk to somebody at that agency about maybe extending it a little while? Uh, maybe you're due to get feed tomorrow and you know we wanna make right. sure there's no welfare concerns with the critters, but we gotta step up to enhance biosecurity to make sure that feed truck that was on another farm yesterday doesn't accidentally bring something your way today. Yeah, yeah. That, go ahead, Rosie. I was just gonna say, it's, those things, like you've mentioned so many, I feel like I've seen you talk so many times and I learn so much every single time, <laughs> it's great. And, but these secure supply plans that they're a hundred pages long. And, you know, like if you had to dig into that in an event like this, I would miss something. I would, you know, like, I, I feel like these things and thinking through what that would look like now before something like that happens is where it's so important to just know what would be the first thing you would do. And ha like you said, having those contingency plans. I don't know. Where, where would a producer start? Say, say now that I've heard you four times, I'm finally going to get off my duff and, and <laughs> do something. Um, where would I start? What what would be the first steps? Yeah, so the first place to land is securesheepwool.org. Okay. And that website has, again, maybe too much information for your first visit, but there's a handy dandy little tab up there called producers. And right under producers is where do I start? You know, getting started. And it walks through four basic steps to get people to start thinking about some of these things. And I'll tell you, there's so many demands on people's time, right? It's hard to prioritize something that has not been in the United States for over 90 years. I right. get it. I absolutely get it. Is there one little step, two little steps you could take that first might be contacting your state and asking for a premises identification number? It's free. It's confidential. They don't need to know your tax ID, all of that kind of stuff, right? They just <laughs> want to know what critters do you have and about where are they at? We've learned this from wildfires, right? right? Sometimes the wildfire situation almost puts a stop movement around some of these operations right. and trying to help people understand, look, I got to get in and still care for my animals. I got to make sure they got water, they got feed, Right. Even if there's a, you know, a standstill around a wildfire, if the state knows that there's critters in that area, that also helps in normal challenges, not these, you know, maybe far fetched things like a disease that hasn't been here. Right. Right. So that registering with the state, getting that premises identification number again, it's a couple of clicks or a phone call. And in 10 minutes, you're done. You're in the system. You'll be notified. So that I think was maybe the first and most important step producers could do quickly without a lot of effort. You know, it strikes me that the similarities with wildfire too. And, and one of the things that, that we've discovered in California is that, um, yeah, it's important for me to have my own plan, but it's also important for me to know what the neighbors are doing and 
and for us all to kind of be on the same page um, with how we're going to respond in a situation like that. It would seem to me that there's a lot of similarities with foot and mouth disease and that we, we want to be working with our neighbors as well. How do the plans facilitate that type of, of collaboration? Yeah, excellent point. So one of the biosecurity topics it talks about is, are there livestock on adjacent premises, Mm -hmm. right? Do you Mm -hmm. have any nose to nose because we know how this disease is spread. And so it encourages folks to reach out to your neighbors to know, okay, strategically, can we maybe think about how we're going to move? So if we do have animals, even with domestic diseases, maybe they're at a completely different vaccination status, right? right? Now we're weaning lambs and we're going to put them over here. Well, what are they right next to from the neighbors, right? right? You can have regular diseases transmit through nose to nose contact, even in daily. So some of the principles we talk about, even though we say they're enhanced, they will have benefits now with some of the common diseases, just getting people to think a little bit differently. But as you pointed out, those conversations with neighbors are important. Sharing trailers, right? Right. That's the biosecurity risk when there's a highly contagious disease. It's not such a big risk with most common diseases, but you know, we're never at zero risk. So what are some of those conversations about who might be hauling? Um, You know, if you're, you know, sharing, ATVs or four wheelers or horses and, you know, trailing animals and that kind of stuff, what steps need to be taken, you know, before walking back into your own herd or before using that piece of equipment or even that horse with your own flock at home. So those conversations are really important. One of the things that, that struck me in our workshop down in San Diego was thinking about livestock guardian dogs probably nobody else's dogs do this, but my dogs on occasion have been known to bring home a prized deer leg or, you know, something like that, or, or in our part of the world interact with wild pigs. Um, so I, I guess the question I have is, is the risk always absolute zero or do you understand kind of where your risks may come in and, and try to mitigate those as you can in a situation like this? Great question. And I, I'm sure your dog is the only one that's ever brought you that <laughs> possession of, of a dead leg of something, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Special training that we provide. Right. Yeah. Yes, for sure. sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, we'll never get to zero risk. Absolutely not. And, you know, I think that's the thing is a lot of times people hear biosecurity and they raise outdoor livestock and they think like Rosie had said, oh, that's a pig or a poultry thing. Mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. do that. No, we're not asking, you know, this, you know, high end type of thing, but identifying where your risks lie, because at the end of the day, if if a stop movement is put into place, and really, that's one of the first control mechanisms that and, and we've used it, you know, in every outbreak we've ever had in the United States and other countries, we stop movement around the infected zone, the wildfire, you might say, mm-hmm. In order to, if if you want to still move and your animals are not showing signs of infection, you can apply for a movement permit. But one of the things the state's going to ask you, but maybe more importantly, if somebody's your lamb buyer is going to ask you is what are you doing to make sure you're not bringing me a little burning ember, right? right? Right. And so having those conversations to know where your risk areas lie, if you know you need to move, 
you might need to bring things closer to home for a period of time before they then go on to the next destination. Maybe that's out of state or maybe that's to another buyer. So maybe those livestock guardian dogs are still out with the herders, but maybe that you know group of animals that you know you need to move, you do bring them in for a period of time, watch them a little closer, try to break their exposure risks as much as possible mm-hmm. and you know watch them for you know week 10 days and then if they're good and you you know fill out all the paperwork in the state and then your recipient says, "Oh, you've taken some extra steps." Really that's what it's all about, right? We yeah. can't get rid of everything. I'm going to still send my kids to school in a pandemic. But if we then know something, well, then we manage that exposure a little bit differently. Same right. kind of principle. Right. Although my kids don't tend to drag. Oh, that's a lie. My kids <laughs> did bring home a deer leg. <laughs> so, you know, teenagers, livestock, guardian dogs. I Yeah, there's a lot of similarities here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And <laughs> We no longer find all sorts of things in the washing machine after doing the girls' laundry, but there was a time when just about everything they could fit in a pocket came home. I was famous for roly polies. And- <laughs> <laughs> My mom hated that. <laughs> uh, but I think so. I think that community piece kind of goes back to what you were saying, Dan, with, you know, not only what we can do to protect our livestock, but what are the questions that would be asked of us and what we can do to prepare for those situations? Because it's, I, I can't imagine many folks are gonna be able to just hunker down for a long period of time with livestock that have to be fed. And even if they can, because they have the space or whatnot, people are, resources are gonna have to come on and that's part of it too. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I think that, I don't know what agencies are you guys talking to within communities to kind of build that network or at least kind of prepare them for something like this is that a piece that's happened so far so from a state perspective right so the the secure sheep and wool supply plans are are guidance only we didn't write policy and everything that's in there is voluntary and they were written on a national scale So now what's happening is, you know, now that they're there, the state agencies are picking them up to say, okay, what what nuances does my state have, you know, compared to the next state? And public lands is one of them, right? Right. So you go west, and that's where public land grazing is a big component. You go east, you know, of the Mississippi, Missouri, all that doesn't happen, right? So things that have to happen in western states and communications between agencies has to be a little bit different than, you know, what some of the eastern states would be. So we're really, really just in the infant stages of getting secure sheep and wool rolled out and that's why we did that train the trainer program at the ASI convention you know last month in San Diego and and we have a USDA NAD prep so it's related to preparedness and response plans how do we you know answer some of these questions so funding is just actually February 1st 2022 is day one of a two year project where USDA funded the American Sheep Industry Association along with National Cattlemen's Beef Association to look at public land grazing in the event of a foreign animal disease outbreak. Because again, you may not be commingled within a plot of land, 
but you're sharing, you know, they might be coming right up behind you, right? And, and so there's some shared grounds, there's shared trailheads, corrals for loading animals in and out. And, and there's just some nuances that the great people that were part of the working group for Secure Sheep and Wool said, hey, we haven't really talked about this and we didn't address it at all in Secure Beef. So that's why those two groups came together and said, let's have some of these conversations with our agencies like Bureau of Land Management, Forest yeah. Service, Public Lands Council, USDA, our state animal health officials. So those those are definitely, you know, conversations that need to happen. But even within your own, if you've got a grazing association, right, having somebody like Dan, somebody like Rosie out to talk about what secure sheep and wool supply is, letting you know what some of the risk factors might be. We don't have all the answers on how to address them, but boy, you sure get creative when you're faced with a challenge, right? So getting people to talk about it in peacetime before the chaos of an outbreak really could happen at the local level to have some of these conversations ahead of time. Maybe to get down into the weeds a little bit along, along those lines, what are some of the things that might look like FMD that we're more used to seeing in our livestock. I mean, it, that's, that was one of the takeaways for me too, is that, mm -hmm. that surveillance is so important. Yeah, you bet. So things with sheep that affect their feet and affect their mouth, right? So we could do a little 4-H quiz on this one. Right? <laughs> what do we always tell our 4-H kids, right? We want to think about ORF. Right. And right. so if, if there's something as common as that now, common things happen commonly. Right. So I don't need people freaking out that, oh, my gosh, could it be? Could it be if we get the disease in the United States? That's when it should show up in your thought process. But common things. So foot rot. Right. Because mm -hmm. sheep can become lame. If you think about it, you get a blister between the two toes. That's going to be sore. Right. So. Yeah foot rot might be one of the differentials for something happening on the feet. So, you know, those things really are not earth shattering on a, you know, on a sheep operation from day to day. What changes in an outbreak is now there's something else that might be causing that. And I love sheep, but they are great hiders of diseases. <laughs> right? Yeah. And they're yeah, great they hiders are. of FMD. They may never show a sign of FMD as an adult, it can kill lambs because it causes heart lesions. Oh, so okay. you might have an increase in stillbirths or abortions or newborn lamb death. So that's another sign, which again, we struggle with some other diseases, right? In the right. sheep industry that, that can harm our sheep. So, you know, it is, it's, it's kind of a great pretender in our sheep populations. Mm -hmm. So that's really where stop movement and enhanced biosecurity becomes so much more important than the sheep industry because goodness sakes you can walk by a cow and pick it up pretty easy because she's a drooling and off feed and super lame pigs oh my goodness they get really lame so that's the good thing about wildlife and feral pigs is pigs get really really lame they can even slough their hooves so the range of our feral pig population will shrink. 
right? So that's a yeah. good thing when it comes to disease control. So yeah, all kinds of what ifs, but on a day-to-day, there's some common things you, you got to still kind of be thinking about. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's one of those things like we have seasons that we expect to see things like blue tongue, or we have, you know, seasons and weather conditions where we might expect to see foot rot. And so if we're starting to see things that make us think those, but they're not at the right time, then, you know, maybe that raises a red flag. And even with abortions, like we've talked about abortions before where, you know, maybe you have like a certain percentage that is kind of your baseline, like, yeah, typical that you would experience. And, so then when you're above that, that's when we talk about, you know, getting a diagnosis so that you can better figure out what you need to do to control these things. And so I think, you know, if we're really good at picking up on those nuances and, you know, maybe there's some record keeping that goes with it that helps us like the produce, you guys are the ones that are seeing these things and will be the key to really helping control any of these outbreaks really quickly. I like the, the phrase, to know that you, that common things happen commonly mm-hmm. and it's yeah. i think part of how we realize that things are uncommon is if we're keeping some records you know knowing what our baseline is in terms of lamb mortality or or abortion rates or um like you say rosie seeing things out of season that that look similar to things that we do see commonly how um you know, a lot of our range operations don't ear tag, don't have individual IDs. How can a larger scale operation kind of maintain that level of record keeping um, in a way that's useful in, in a situation like this? Yeah, great question. And we we have resources on the Secure Sheep and Wool Supply site about disease monitoring because knowing what is your baseline certain times of the year to know when a trigger is happening is is so important so we even have picture pages that say are you seeing this are you seeing that so if you're not individually identifying oh my goodness it's still possible right because those herders they know they have such a feel for what that band's health status is right they're out there with them all the time even you know in a large feedlot same kind of thing you have I mean, people are in the livestock business because they get it and they probably like animals a little more than two-legged animals, right? So, you know, just having that feel for, you know, if if your spidey senses start to go up or you have that weird gut feeling that something is a changing, pick up the phone, right? And so, you know, it doesn't have to be down to the nth degree. I think a lot of it is, trusting your gut, trusting you know your flock. And that's why when we talk about things in a secure sheep and wool supply plan, we want folks to to work on biosecurity plans that really know the flock. They know the movements, they understand what's normal and what's practical and how many things have to move. Same with looking for disease. We want somebody that's been doing it you know, not the weekend person that maybe comes over and throws out some flakes of hay and some grain, right? Right. Want that person that's integral into the health management to know. And recognizing it is step one, the state's not going to come out and, you know, ask you for a list of identification numbers. They just want to know something is happening. 
And, and then if something had moved, right, we'll need some records to kind of follow that. They call that the tracing, right? We want to see if it went somewhere else. And there's all kinds of rules about identification for movements and all of that. But the most important thing is trust your gut. And if it seems out of season, out of character, a little higher than normal, well, it's maybe a time to pick up the phone for that, you know, free confidential little look yeah. at what might be going on. Yeah. That's a great, great suggestion. I think even in an event, or I guess it's more of a question, would they require identification of every animal for a permit? I mean, we don't know. It probably totally depends on the state and area and all of that, but I can imagine they could do it by animal inventory, just animal movement in general, or do you, does it sound like it's going to be individual animal if something like this happens? Yes, because our species are so different, right? Like putting an ear tag in a pig, I live in the state of Iowa, just isn't a thing, right? Yeah. So we talk about groups, we talk about lots. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, so the identification is really kind of based on what that species normalcy is. So the one thing you'll need is traceability information. And that means you need a premises identification number for the origin. And you need a premises identification number for the destination. So if they are moving between plots of land, okay, we just need some GPS coordinates. We'll create a premises identification number. We know this group is going to this group, right? Mm -hmm. Now, depending on who the receiver is, they may want a little more identification, just like in normal business practices, right? buyers kind of get to decide what some of the terms of the arrangement are. And so if the buyer says, wow, I'd really like these animals individually ID, fantastic. You know, that, that would still, you know, need to happen for a business transaction, even in an outbreak. But the state really wants to know that premises identification information, individual animal ID, if it's common and normal for that species, yes, because that adds to traceability. And the reason why anybody cares is because people are watching. They're watching the United States. How are you controlling this disease you haven't had in over 90 years? You want us to open up our export markets for your lamb and your wool and your milk and your pork and your beef products? What are you doing to make sure I'm not getting it into my country? Mm -hmm. So they really scrutinize. They will sit across the table from you know other countries having these tough negotiations and they will wanna open up the US records to say, how did you track movements? What information did you have, right? Because now they're our customer right. and they get to determine the terms of buying agreement, right? And so really it's gonna depend on, are we early on in an outbreak? Are we trying to wrap things up and prove disease freedom? So I think the biggest thing producers need to understand is premises identification number will be ultimate because it's a communication tool to you as a producer. And two, things are going to change, right? How we started playing the football game in the first quarter, that playbook is going to look different in the fourth quarter if we're tied up, right? Right. And so we know that things are going to change throughout the outbreak having the plan ahead of time, knowing, you know, who the players are is really important, but recognizing as things progress, they might change a little bit differently, identification included. Mm -hmm. Maybe, maybe digging a little deeper into that with a hypothetical and talking about premise identification numbers. So we're numbers wise, very small, but, but 
location-wise, probably typical of a fair number of commercial sheep operations. And I look at our operation as having kind of three center geographic centers. Um, and by that, I mean, we have to haul from one to the other. We can't simply just walk sheep. So we've got sheep seven miles from the house most of the winter. They come home at shearing in the spring, and then they go to another ranch that's about four miles away for the summer. Is that one premise, or is that something where I would have to have premise numbers for each of those geographic locations? And permitted movement, yeah, between. Yeah. Yeah, so the rule of thumb is if you have to get on a public road to go from one point to another point, you probably need separate premises identification numbers for each yeah. for each physical location. And so knowing that ahead of time, you know, and, and seven miles one way, four miles another way, right? You might in a good way not end up in a control area because it's, you know, it might have encompassed one of your parts of land, right. but not another. So that opens up opportunities for you right if you are not inside that wildfire zone right, right. so definitely reach out to your state they can work with you i had yeah. a dairy i worked with in tennessee and we had 21 different plots of land wow to think about because it was a 1500 cow dairy right and they kept their bull calves right and they fed them as steers but you know you start thinking heifer groups and all of that kind of stuff you know it it it's a lot to yeah. think about but it's in your advantage to know you've got them. You know, it's like not putting all your eggs in one basket, which right. poultry friends here in Iowa, you know, <laughs> they put a million plus birds in one basket and somebody gets infected, that whole unit it's of a million birds is going down. Through the right? whole barn, yeah. Yeah, and so spreading things out is never a bad thing when it comes to disease control, but the permitted movement would have to be requested to go from one premises to another because you might be in a control area for one and not, and in, not another. in another. Right, right. Yeah. That's a good point. Rosie, do you have more questions? I don't know. I just think... I. It's, it's the hardest thing is like motivation to work on these things, right? Like we've talked about, we haven't had this disease in so long and, but we've talked about risk mitigation for different areas, whether it's economic risk or things like that. And I think this is one of those things it's risk mitigation. And then potentially, like you mentioned, there's benefits to normal day-to-day -day practices. If we kind of get in this mindset, oh, what is disease transmission look like in this event? And then you start thinking, hmm, maybe some of these practices could help, you know, when I'm buying new lots of views that could potentially could be exposed to something here or bring something in. Or I think that just starting to have these conversations and, you know, I'm excited to potentially get to work with Dan on a workshop here. And I think it'll be interesting to see what conversations come out of it once we start talking about these things early because we hear about it but actually digging into it and doing that premise map exercise was it's really helpful was, yeah it was fun it was you know because there's low pressure <laughs> <laughs> right right but i don't know yeah. if there's a way that you communicate that with people to really kind of motivate this sort of conversation or yeah, and I think, you know, for your listeners, the one thing we talk about is 
looking at your map from, or looking at your operation from a bird's eye view, right? Mm -hmm. So going on Google Maps or Bing Maps or whatever, and, and looking at, you know, what, what am I looking at as far as my kingdom, mm -hmm. right? And, and what are some of the potential risks? And, you know, nobody knows it better than the person that's ordering feed and, yeah. <laughs> and arranging for the shears to show up and that. And right. so I think one of the, the first things to just think about is what's in your area, right? How, how at risk are you? If you're close to pigs, pigs can put you at pretty high risk from FMD. If you're not, okay, you've just lowered your risk right there. And then, you know, maybe think about a typical week or two and, and what kind of movements have to come on. And do they have to? Do they, mm -hmm. how close might they have to get to the sheep? Right? Are there things that we could do maybe a little bit differently that, you know, aren't bringing things so awful close, right? Mm -hmm. if, if things were carried on truck tires or whatever. And so, you know, just, get the wheels turning right when you're sitting behind the windshield or you know out on that ATV and you're moving things like you're I know you're thinking about 15 other things so <laughs> item number 12 then, <laughs> right, is you know just start thinking about well what does come on and come off you know and and are any of those things maybe more risky and what could I do as a stopgap and right. I know Dan and Rosie are available to you know troubleshoot and answer some of those questions, but animal movements are the biggest risk for any disease, right? Anytime you're bringing in animals, that's an opportunity to bring in disease. So what can you do around them? Are you willing to take that risk? Do you want to mitigate it a little bit? There's some tools out there. We often think about vehicles coming on. Well, they can come on as long as they're not out driving through your critters. Right. And if they need to drive through the critters, maybe you have a designated vehicle that always drives in the critters hop in with me we're gonna go drive right right so just a couple of things people can kind of mull around when they're you know out yeah. checking waters or you know breaking ice yeah. breaking <laughs> ice some road time you know those kinds yeah. of things yeah just thinking differently about your own operation i think is hard to do sometimes but refreshing when you take a step back and catch your breath a little bit I have yeah. a question. So what if people are leasing land? How would you get a premise ID for that? You know, yeah. like, I think that fits with kind of what you were talking about, Dan. Yeah. Does it have to be owned land or how does that work? Uh, it doesn't have to be owned land. What the state, and again, every state's a little bit different and they can guide you on, you know, what's happening. But um, the biggest thing is if there are critters that are going to wind up on a plot of land, whether that's public lands, leased lands, your own lands, Knowing that that population of animals might show up there at some time in the year is really what they're after. And so, um, you know, we have we have landowners that don't live in the state of Iowa. They, you know, they go to Arizona, right? But we're grazing cattle on them. As long as they know who to get in touch with, you know, having a conversation with that landowner to say, hey, I'm going to contact the state because I'm going to graze. I just want them to know my contact information. Some states might want the landowner's contact information as well, but again, it varies by the state. So the biggest thing is think about it from a wildfire standpoint. Right. If, if your animals are, are subject to a wildfire and you need to be notified or resources need to be brought in or you need permission to get in, you know, setting up that communication ahead of time through that premises identification number is a great way to get there. 
So, and then these plans, when we talk about developing these plans, do we think of one plan per premise or is it something that you can kind of do across, you know, the whole entire operation? How do you kind of approach those? We tend to think of them as operation specific mm -hmm. and operation is loosely identified, right? So if you have the same type of practices and access and you know inputs and outputs from that operation, you're going to have very similar biosecurity approaches across. Mm -hmm. But when we start to change human resources doing things or inputs or outputs, you know, and it needs to be specific, that's when a, a separate plan might need to be written. Mm -hmm. But if you think about, okay, I'm always the one that's going to be trailing the animals or hauling the animals or whatever, right? Then those practices for that operation might be identical to the three other places that you graze. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. home operation might be a little bit different because maybe you've got a little more activity with feed trucks, propane right. delivery, fuel delivery, Amazon, you know, if you use rendering, that might look a little different. So you might have to have maybe a home and then a grazing uh, mm -hmm. biosecurity plan. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think the other piece that will be interesting as we get into it here, and I suspect other places will be kind of the backyard um, livestock folks that, that maybe aren't members of wool growers or ASI or um, you know, 4-H will get us at some of that, but, but there's an awful lot of folks with small ruminants in particular that are, have their five sheep and don't think of themselves as ranchers. Uh, that, that I think is an area we'll need to work on too. I think the nice thing about them is they have a pretty well-defined right. farm gate. Right. Right. And then they're sheep, so they're not poultry that are like jumping fences and getting into other yards. <laughs> so hopefully they're pretty well contained to their yard. And you know, so I think unless they're Barbados sheep, and then yeah, they're not. yeah, true, true. <laughs> they're just wild now. <laughs> I think you know, like those would be. I I don't know if you agreed to know where maybe those are more conversations we have about human biosecurity acts like farm boots versus like wearing the same boots to the feed store and all of that. But, yeah. yeah, for sure. I think, you know, knowing what the risks are and we talk about inputs and things that need to leave the outputs, right? If, you know, it, it, size to me doesn't matter as much as, you know, what are the movements that need to happen commonly and, right. and what risks do those pose? And, you know, for the folks that don't necessarily, they're not joiners of organizations, the thing they all have in common is they all have to buy feed. That's right. And so here in Iowa, when I worked with Extension, a lot of the things we would do is work through the feed stores, you That's know, getting flyers up, making sure people working at the counter understand. And they're a great conduit if we were to get into something big, bad, and scary, um, is is everybody's got to buy a feed product. So that's an avenue to even get the folks that you know might not have other communication avenues. That's a great point. That's a great point. Because I think those that do go, you know, maybe small, but go to livestock shows and things like that, they're they're part of that community, so they have that source of information. But like you said, those that are just homesteaders or you know don't tend to move very much yeah i think that feed store approach makes a lot of sense yep cool 
Well, Danelle, thank you very, very much. This is this has been really, really helpful, and I feel like we've scratched the surface, and we'll we'll have to as we go through this process ourselves. We'll have lots more questions. We'll have lots more questions <laughs> for you. Any last words that you would share with folks about about this whole um, plan and, and process? Yeah, I would just encourage folks if you know they got a smartphone, go to securesheepwool.org and and poke around a little bit and and see what's there. There's some really short you know, cool videos that, you know, if you, if you like that kind of learning, if you're someone who wants a little checklist to kind of work through things, those things are all there. And, you know, foot and mouth disease hasn't been in the United States since 1929. If it were diagnosed, it's not a human disease. It's not a food safety concern. It's a contagious animal disease. And, you know, we're all part of the solution to making sure that our flocks are protected. And just knowing that there's some tools out there, if people want to dip their feet in a little bit and start thinking about some contingency planning, securesheepwool.org will provide them with the tools they need to get started. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I think we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. We've had uh, Dr. Danelle Bickett-Weddle with us today from Iowa, where it's a lot colder than it is in California. <laughs> um, and this is Dan Macon in Auburn, Dr. Rosie Bush down in Davis. And this has been another episode of Sheep Stuff You Should Know. Thank you both. This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Cool. Thank you, Danelle, very, very much. This has been really yeah. good. Really yeah. good. I enjoyed it. It was good. We'll you send guys, you. We'll send you, you the link. Going, so. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. We've we decided that since COVID happened, we don't get to go to the coffee shop as much. So we we got to have our banter virtually. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yes. I uh, after Rosie told me about him, I I you're now in my. I've subscribed to your channel. <laughs> Been, uh -oh. been listening because it's good right like I the perspectives the livestock guardian dog world is not a world I've ever ever lived in personally and so I mean my first memories of farming was at my cousin's with baby lambs right yep. and all the way through high school but but you know in South Dakota we didn't we didn't have livestock guardian dogs we had a donkey yeah you know and so that whole thing and you guys had a great episode on that and I really enjoyed listening to it and learning from it and yeah so yeah. keep it on so much from those guys they're good <laughs> we're all learning <laughs> we're all learning thank you guys very very much well I'll send you the link when it, it'll probably um be posted next Wednesday, but I'll, depends, I'll make sure I share the We link. haven't shared the one from the convention yet because John's still trying to figure out the audio. Oh, right. So that one might be next, but it, this one could be also. Sometime in the next two we'll weeks. We'll see if we ever publish that one. <laughs> <laughs> we, we did one, Danelle, after the re industry reception in the bar. <laughs> so oh oh and ryan forgot to activate the remotes the hand remotes that we were holding so the only remotes that were working were the ones on the device which was on the table <laughs> so dan sounds really good because it was facing dan and i was next to dan so i sound okay but ryan's behind it <laughs> so he sounds like he's in a bucket or something <laughs> just maybe where we ought to keep him yeah <laughs> Oh, wow. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, I bet those are some good conversations. <laughs> yeah, it was. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Very cool. Uh, well, thank you for the opportunity. This is great. And I know, you know, if there's anything I can do to help, you know, promote it, I'll get it out on my social as well. And great. And let people know. And yeah. Yeah. If you guys, you know, you're into a workshop and you, you know, need to bounce ideas off or whatever, um, you know, if you want to do a new uh, facility and you're like, want to work on maps and have me look at stuff, you know, reach out because it's it's Great. always a learning experience for me to to you know see more operations and the nuances and how do we address things. So right, we're going to definitely go through it with ours kind of as a, a learning process. But I'm thinking sometime this summer maybe some regional workshops. I talked a little bit with with Julie Finzel who was also at the train the trainer yeah. workshop, and I think you know kind of a cattle sheep goat one would be. And I good. happened to run into Gabby this week. And so I, I kind of, I told her about it. <laughs> cool. Good. Good. So we, we will definitely be in touch. And I know I'll have questions as, as we go through ours. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I worked with North and South Carolina and Virginia. We did a virtual in 2020 and, and they wanted to do outdoor raised pigs on a mixed species operation. And oh, so, yeah. yeah, it was they had just sold their sheep like two months before I worked with this group, but they had, they had every species. They had poultry, they had cattle, they, oh, had, wow. pigs, they had sheep. It was fantastic. So yeah, wildlife in the area and yeah. oh, the maps and all of this kind of stuff. And we did the whole training virtually and it, and it came off without a hitch. So, cool. you know, reach out. There's things you can, you know, have questions on or whatever. Like I said, I learned from these as much as anybody you know to see a new perspective so awesome great thank you all right have a great day guys thank you guys yep bye bye